Good morning. My name is Matt Morton. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace, and uh, we are going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12 this morning, 1 Peter chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Uh, We had a great time seeing some family and friends over the holiday. And uh, one of the activities that my kids enjoyed the most uh, was watching the Charlie Brown Thanksgiving special. Maybe you've seen this special, maybe you haven't, uh, but let me summarize it for you if you've never seen it before. For some of you, this will be a refresher. Uh, Charlie Brown, on the day before Thanksgiving, is getting ready to go to his grandmother's house and enjoy a great meal when Peppermint Patty calls him out of the blue and invites herself over to Thanksgiving dinner. And she says she's going to bring Marcy, her friend, and Franklin as well. And so they all are planning to come. And Charlie Brown doesn't have the strength of character simply to say no. So he agrees, but then panics because he doesn't know how to make any food. He doesn't realize uh, all of the complexity. He doesn't understand the complexity of a Thanksgiving dinner. So he calls Linus and they gather together with Snoopy and they come up with a plan. And the plan is that they are going to serve a meal in the afternoon and then go to grandma's house in the evening. Now, again, the problem is Charlie Brown only knows how to make a few things, popcorn, jelly beans, toast, uh, pretzel sticks. So uh, they put this together, and that's what they serve. And Peppermint Patty is deeply disappointed with the sadness of this feast. She wants a real Thanksgiving feast, a turkey and stuffing and all these. And so at the table, she berates Charlie Brown, and then Marcy, her friend, steps in and says, "Uh, Peppermint Patty, did Charlie Brown invite you? Or did you invite yourself, right? And then they reconcile and they all go to grandma's house and it ends happily ever after. It's a cute story, but as I watched it with my kids, it occurred to me, Charlie Brown has never had a stress-free holiday in his life. Every single one of them are like this. Uh, Christmas, he buys a tree and the tree is too small and everybody's all on top of him. Even uh, Halloween is stressful for him. He causes problems. He has never had a stress-free holiday. He knows what it is like to live with a certain tension of hope and despair at the same time. That you hope for good things to happen, but often the holiday doesn't live up to your expectations because we don't live in a perfect world. That's the life of Charlie Brown. It may be that as you walked through Thanksgiving this past week and as you look toward Christmas, you're experiencing that tension as well because you want to sit down and have the Norman Rockwell Thanksgiving with your family, but there's stress or there's conflict or there's challenge. And so you cook the meal and maybe you drop the turkey on the floor or you get cranberry sauce on your pants or you get in an argument with your crazy Uncle Dave about football and you have this stress. Uh, It may be that the stress causes the holiday to balance in the favor of sadness rather than joy. In other words, it may be you sit there and you go, "Uh, my holiday was sadder than it was joyful, perhaps because there was an empty chair at the table because I lost somebody this year that I wish were here. Or maybe the food is sparse because you have financial challenges. Or maybe the conversation is minimal because there's relational tension in your family. Or maybe you're lonely. And so you go through the holiday hoping and wishing for it to be perfect. But it doesn't live up to that expectation. 
Now, that's not true only at Thanksgiving or only at Christmas, is it? That's really the reality of our lives. We often place a great deal of hope and expectation in this world upon things that can't bear the weight of that hope and expectation, and they let us down. And so we live within this constant tension where we hope for great things, and yet we're disappointed. That's the reality of living in a world that is shot through with sin and death as a result of sin. We live in a fallen world that will always disappoint until the day Jesus returns. And we'd like to think that if we believe in Jesus, if we pursue him, that that will remove all of that difficulty. And in fact, some people preach that way. There is a theology that says if you pray hard enough, if you give enough money, if you do enough good things, God will shower blessings upon you, wealth and riches and land and health and happiness now. The problem is that that's not the way that the early Christians saw their life, and that didn't seem to be their reality. In fact, they lived with an expectation that following Jesus would actually increase their suffering rather than remove it. Look at a couple of passages from the New Testament. From the book of 2 Timothy, Paul says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you know Jesus, you have the privilege of knowing him, but you also face the reality that your values and your goals collide with the values and goals of our world. And so that creates tension and it causes persecution. And we don't experience perhaps here the same degree of persecution that those in previous generations did or those in other countries may still today. But we do live with this pain and tension that our values, our system of thinking under Jesus Christ is not the same as the world. And that can increase the pain and suffering we feel. On top of that, we also face the pain and suffering just of living in a fallen world. And so James says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when, not if, when you encounter various trials. In other words, it is a reality that you will experience all kinds of difficulty, death and sickness and sin and conflict and pain because of living in a fallen world. Now, once we pile all that together, it is the reality for many of us that these occasions and events that we expect to be pure joy are often tinged with sadness. Some days the scale weighs in favor of happiness. Some days it weighs in favor of sadness. And sometimes the sadness goes on for days and weeks and months and years. And so as Christians, the question is, how do we respond while we're living in the midst of that kind of attention? Do we respond with bitterness and frustration and anger for what God has not given? Do we respond with envy and jealousy for others who seem to have more? Or do we respond with praise and thanksgiving? Can I thank God at the thanksgiving table, even if many of my hopes and dreams for the year did not come true. Can I do that at Christmas? What we see in 1 Peter chapter 1 is 1 Peter will say, yes, we can. We can praise God in whatever circumstances. And the reason is not rooted in this world. The reason is rooted in what God has done in Jesus Christ and the promise that that entails for the future, for what he will do in the future. And both of those realities converge 
on the present and provide us with an opportunity to praise him now, with a reason to praise him now. That's what First Peter is about. And Peter is writing to men and women who have lost many things for their faith. They've lost, in some cases, their property, in some cases, their livelihood, in some cases, their friendships, and eventually some of them lost their lives. And yet Peter says, you can rejoice even in the midst of trials, even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of death, because we have a hope that will not fade away. So we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12, and we're going to see these reasons that Peter gives for why we can hope even in the midst of trial. And the first one he gives is this, we can praise God in all circumstances because our future is hopeful. Look at verses 3 through 5 with me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So as the basis for our hope, Peter first says this, that you can look past your present circumstances to the future living hope found in Jesus Christ. What he means is this, that you and I have a hope that is alive because Jesus rose from the dead. And if you believe in Jesus, you have been born anew, out of death, out of sin, to the hope of eternal life. That isn't merely that your spirit goes to heaven when you die, but the promise that one day Jesus will return and the dead will rise from their graves and heaven will come to earth. And so we have a hope that is alive, a future hope that cannot be taken away. That's the value of what we call eschatology, looking at the end times. And I think the key danger in prosperity theology, which teaches that if you obey God well now, he will give you earthly blessings. I think the key danger is that we place all of this weight on our future blessings to say, my family or my bank account or my health or my job has to bear all the weight of my hope. And God needs to fulfill my hopes in these earthly things. The problem is that these earthly things consistently collapse under the weight. And so Peter says, no, our hope is future. We don't have our best life right now. We will have our best life in the day when Jesus returns. I ran across a comic book in a bookstore several years ago, and it was about the trials and travails of a junior high student. And uh, one of the comic strips showed him sitting at his desk, surrounded by his classmates, and the little thought bubble above his head said, one day I'm going to be famous, but right now I'm surrounded by morons. And I read that, and I thought, I, I... Related to that in junior high, that's how I felt. I had a hard time in junior high connecting with my peers, and so what did I do? I looked forward to the day when I would walk out of that school and not return, when I would receive my redemption, my release from this difficult time in life. Uh, You have periods of time in your life when you look forward to the future to help you endure trial right now. So if you're a student, you look forward to the day when you will walk across that stage and grab that diploma and look forward to the job or career that you're working toward. And that gives you hope 
as you struggle with tests and quizzes and boring books and irrational professors and all of these things that weigh you down. Perhaps if you're single, you face the struggle of loneliness and you have this deferred hope toward getting married. Perhaps if you have small children who wake you up repeatedly in the night, you have a hope that one day they'll be independent. Perhaps if you are saving and scrimping for retirement, you look forward to that day when you won't have to do that anymore and you'll enjoy the fruits of your planning. And so we defer our hope to the future in earthly things. And what Peter calls us to do now is to say, we do that in heavenly things as well. And in fact, the living hope of Jesus Christ is greater, far greater than any of these earthly hopes. And the key reason he gives is because it is imperishable and undefiled. It's not tainted with sin. See, every pleasure in this life is tainted with the prospect of death and the reality of sin that although I love my relationships with my family and my friends, they are often difficult because we're sinners. And although I'm appreciative for material blessings and for money, we all recognize that money flies through our hands like a bird to the sky. And although we're grateful for our health, we know one day it'll fail. And Peter says, you have a hope that is imperishable and undefiled. Nothing will take it away. Nothing will destroy it. Nothing will taint it with sin because it is from the promise of God that Jesus rose again and in his rising again, he defeated death, he defeated sin, and we have this hope of eternal life. And he says it's protected, guarded by the power of God. God stands in front of our future inheritance and he doesn't let anything touch it. If you read about Fort Knox, Kentucky, where the United States Depository of Gold Bullion is held, you'll find it's one of the most secure facilities on earth. There are three fences that surround it. Two of them are electrical fences. At each fence or gate, there are armed guards, multiple armed guards You can't sneak up on this facility. There are cameras. There are motion detectors. You can't get in. Nobody can get in by themselves. Each person who comes in has a portion of a code that they have to enter, and those codes change on a daily or weekly basis. The walls are four feet thick made of granite. Underneath is 10 feet thick of granite. You can't tunnel under it. All throughout the facility on the multiple levels, there are armed guards and cameras and motion detectors. The vaults are thick steel that no one can bust through. It's said that the facility could withstand the blast of an atomic bomb and remain standing. And to top it all off, there are 30,000 troops at its disposal. Not even Ocean's Eleven is going to break into this place. It is utterly secure. What Peter says is that your eternal life and the blessings that entails are more secure than Fort Knox because they're protected by the power of God. So in the midst of struggle and pain and difficulty, we look forward and we say the day is coming when Jesus will return and those who believe in him will rise from the grave. And if you look at Revelation 21 and 22, heaven comes to earth and it specifically says there is no more death, there is no more crying, there is no more sickness, there is no more pain. It'll all be washed away. And we look back to what Jesus has done. And his resurrection is a promise 
that the final resurrection will occur. And so we have this future hope that allows us to praise God, not because of the presence or lack of earthly blessings, but because we have blessings that go far beyond, that are securely promised and securely held. If you believe in Jesus this morning, you have a promise that all those blessings are coming to you. For those who do not, the message of Peter is that Jesus died for your sin. All have sinned, and all are worthy of eternal punishment separated from God. But Jesus died and rose again to defeat death, to defeat sin, and all who place their hope in him have this eternal hope and can praise God even in suffering. This is why we all know men and women who, although they've suffered greatly, their face radiates with the joy of God because of the Spirit of Christ that lives in them, because they know of the future hope in Jesus Christ. And that future hope then provides the second reason we can praise God, which is this, that our struggles are now meaningful. Our struggles are now meaningful. Look at verses 6 through 9. Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. What Peter is saying is this, is that as we look toward the future and as we rejoice in this hope of eternal life, the future bounces back onto the present so that we have this opportunity even now to rejoice at the salvation that is promised. And in fact, we experience that salvation even now as these trials and struggles shape us into the image of Jesus Christ. Several years ago, I read a book by Malcolm Gladwell. It's called Outliers. And Gladwell in the book talks about the characteristics that define those who are successful, at least in earthly terms. And one of the stories he tells is about a family of Polish immigrants who came to the United States in the early 20th century. And they got involved in the clothing industry, making clothes for their community. And they would sit in hot rooms for 10 to 12 hours a day, bent over a sewing machine. It was backbreaking labor. And they made very little profit. And he tells the story of this one family in particular. The husband went out one day and he was trying to think, what sort of clothing can I make that will fill a niche that hasn't been filled and as he walked around, he saw a little girl with a small apron playing on the ground, the apron to protect her clothes while she played in the dust. And he realized he didn't know of any clothing manufacturers nearby that were making these. He ran home to his wife and he grabbed her around the waist and he danced around with her in the kitchen and he said, I found it, I found our niche. He hadn't made a dime yet, had he? And Gladwell points out that what lay ahead of him was years of backbreaking work for low pay and extremely difficult conditions. So why did he rejoice? Because he had hope that the labor would result in social advancement and a better future for his family. And Gladwell says, hard work is only a prison sentence when it is meaningless. Once it has meaning, 
Hard work becomes the kind of thing that causes you to grab your wife around the waist and do a jig because you have hope. Peter says the same thing about suffering. If suffering is meaningless, as most Eastern religions claim, Buddhism, Hinduism, they claim suffering is essentially meaningless. If suffering in this life is truly meaningless, then we really have no hope. But what happens in Jesus Christ is because we have this hopeful future, because we look back and see what Jesus has done, even our suffering now has meaning. And what Peter tells us is that in the midst of our suffering, we are being shaped and we are being refined. And so he says, much like gold goes through the refiner's fire, if you think of what happens to gold as it's melted down, they would strain out the impurities and reconstitute it as purer, more valuable, more worthy gold. And Peter says, that's what's happening to you. As you endure trials of all kinds, persecution and suffering and death and sickness, what's happening is God sharpens and strengthens and purifies your faith so it is more precious than gold. So on the day that you meet Jesus Christ, your life gives him glory and praise. And so your suffering is not meaningless. It's interesting, he says, you are obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. That's a present participle. It means right now, in the present, you are obtaining the salvation of your souls. What is Peter saying? Is he saying that our suffering causes us to earn eternal life? No, that's not at all what he's saying. Because in the same context, he talks about how the resurrection of Christ is the basis for our eternal life. Instead, what Peter is saying is this, that as I struggle, as I grow, As I am shaped into the person that God intends me to be in Jesus Christ, I draw closer to him, I experience the joy and the peace of his spirit, and I experience a taste now of what salvation one day will be, that I am being set free, I am being redeemed from sin, from the fear of death, from my distance from God, from relational conflict from sickness. I am now experiencing a taste of what life will be like when Jesus returns. And even though the circumstances might not change, I begin to change. And I grow closer and closer to Jesus Christ. Because what is eternal life except the joy ultimately of being in the presence of God? of worshiping Jesus Christ with a pure heart and mind. And Peter says, now we are being transformed into those who can do that. And so the future bounces back into the past when I trust God in the midst of my suffering. And so Peter says, your future is hopeful and your struggles are not meaningless. They have meaning in Jesus Christ. So as you sat at Thanksgiving and perhaps felt sad or grief or lonely. What Peter says is that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the future promise of eternal life come together in that moment to remind you that your suffering has meaning right now. To remind you that you're not invisible. God sees. Not only does he see, but he cares. And he cares enough that he's given us his son who has washed it all away at the cross. 
and he promises eternal redemption. And even now, he's making good on that promise as he transforms you and me and draws us closer to him. So the future is hopeful. Your suffering is meaningful. And then Peter gives us one more joy. Let me mention before we get into that. As we talk about the meaningful nature of suffering, James says this, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. In other words, this fits with this concept is that as I am transformed, I also look forward and I recognize that there is a reward for those who suffer well. Eternal life is a free gift given to all who trust in Jesus. But over and over again, the scripture says, those who suffer well will stand before Jesus Christ and hear well done and receive a reward. So my suffering even now has implications for the future. Just as the future has implications for the present, the present has implications for the future. And so suffering has meaning in Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, not only does our struggle have meaning, but our privilege in Jesus Christ is incomparable. Look at verses 10 through 12. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. In other words, Peter says this, you and I are in a very privileged position because we know of the hopeful future, because we know of what Jesus has done. We stand in a unique place in history where we recognize all of the promises of the prophets have converged into the person of Jesus Christ. And they wrote and they waited for this day. And so we have this unbelievable, incomparable privilege to know him right here and right now. I don't know if you have ever uh, wanted the privilege that somebody else has. Maybe you've looked at something another person had and you thought, I want that. I want that person's life. Uh, Recently, I was talking with my middle child, my daughter, who is five, and she said, Daddy, sometimes it's really hard to be in the middle. And I immediately knew where she was going because I'm a middle child. I have an older brother and a younger brother. And I said, well, tell me, why is it hard to be in the middle? And she said, well, sometimes your older sibling gets something cool that you don't get, and sometimes your younger sibling gets something, and you're just in the middle, and you don't get anything. And, and I, I immediately resonated with that because I remember that feeling. My older brother always got to go to places that I didn't get to go to before me, right? He got to go with his friends uh, to the water park or whatever, and I had to wait. I always had to wait to do what he got to do. But on the other hand, my younger brother got away with all kinds of stuff that I couldn't get away with because he was the baby. And so he got freedom from certain chores that I had to do. And so stuck in the middle, sometimes I felt that I had all of the responsibility and none of the privilege. And I envied the others. Maybe you felt that way. Go, I want what this person has. I want their house. I want their family. I want their job. I want that privilege. Now here's the great thing about First Peter. He says, if you know Jesus Christ, you have a privilege that even the angels, even the prophets wanted to have. 
You have a privilege that is greater than any of those privileges you envy. Right here in College Station, Texas in 2013, you've been blessed to know Jesus Christ. Peter says the prophets wrote for hundreds and for thousands of years, wanting to know, longing to know what it was God was promising. And you know. You know him. You know this future hope in a way they only understood through a glass darkly. It says even the angels, even the angels who live in the presence of God want to understand and participate in the salvation God has given you and me. Because we've been redeemed from death, from sin, from all of those things. And we've had an encounter with the risen Jesus Christ in a way that others have not. That's an incomparable privilege. What that means then is in the midst of those moments of suffering, in the midst of those moments of pain, and I don't know the pain and suffering of many in here. For some, it's terrible, it's tragic, it's overwhelming. And yet Peter confidently says, no matter what it is, you have a greater privilege and greater riches and greater blessing in Jesus Christ than anything you suffered. Paul will say that the sufferings of this present time can't even be compared to the glory that is to be revealed. And that's what drives joy and that's what drives praise in the midst of pain. We don't rejoice because of the pain. We don't say, I'm glad I hurt, right? Only crazy people do that. Instead, we say that in the midst of this, I know that God has promised me a future without suffering. And even right now, he's changing me to know him, to love him, to experience him. And so the presence of his spirit becomes our peace and our basis for joy because we have this infinite, incomparable privilege of knowing Jesus Christ. And that's the essence of the hope that Peter provides to people who have lost jobs, people who have lost homes, people who have lost friends, and people who have lost loved ones. There is no suffering that isn't destroyed at the cross because of the resurrection of Jesus. Your hope, my hope, is alive. And so we praise him each day in the midst of the pain. And again, this is why we know some people who reach the end of their life and the pain and the suffering has crushed them and made them bitter and angry. And then we know others whose faces, although perhaps ravaged by time and perhaps full of the years of suffering, they radiate the joy of Jesus Christ. This is the difference. Where do I place the weight of my hope and expectations? We live essentially in a Charlie Brown world, right? There are elements of joy mixed with deep sadness. And the great thing about looking forward and looking back and allowing Jesus' resurrection and Jesus' return to converge right now is that I can enjoy the blessings God gives now, right? I can be grateful for my family, for my home, for my job, for my money. I can be grateful for those things without leaning on them until they're crushed. And so am I. Because I can say all these things are as a small, small taste of the unbelievable riches that God will one day give to all who love him. 
because your family is sinful, they will let you down and they will pass away. Money will fly off, your home will decay, your body will decay. There will become a day when you're not respected at work like you would like to be. And all of these earthly dreams will fade away. But the hope of Jesus Christ remains. And that becomes the source of our praise because he's promised us more than the suffering we experience. A hope that is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you and protected by the power of God. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful to you that you have given us incomparable blessings in Jesus Christ. We know that there are those in here who have experienced deep suffering and Thanksgiving was not unadulterated happiness. There are those who have lost those they love. There are those who are experiencing trials in their marriage, trials with their finances, challenges at school, problems with their health, and the constant struggle to sin. And yet we know that you see us and you love us. We know that the death and resurrection of Jesus is proof that you love us, proof that you know of our pain, proof that you have destroyed sin, you've destroyed pain, you've destroyed death in him. And so I pray as we move forward into Christmas that our praise and our thanksgiving would be rooted in the reality of the coming kingdom of God rather than in the passing joys of earth. Let us draw close to you and refine and shape us through those things we suffer. Father, we love you, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful week.